0: Hello and I hope you're having a great week. Thanks to everyone that's been listening. It's been brilliant to see the show up at number one in Lebanon and number two in India in the last week or so. And I also did a, a session live on the Ghana platform with over 50,000 people tuning in. So some brilliant questions, mostly about Sachin Tendulkar and MS Dhoni, I have to say, but brilliant to reconnect with my Indian audience. I've absolutely missed traveling out there to watch some cricket and do some coaching, Uh, but it's brilliant to see this T20 series bringing so many talking points and it's set up for a fantastic battle. So welcome to today's episode of MicroLessons, where we're going to be exploring setbacks, confidence and the psychology of different sporting environments. The content comes from a podcast interview I did back in January with two great guys, Cam Scott and Joel Barber, and their show's called Giving the Game Away. So if you'd like to listen to the whole episode, then I'll make sure the links are in the show notes for you today. So let's get straight into the section of the show where we discuss the role of setbacks in sport enjoy
1: i guess even the best athletes do have those low points in their careers and it's something that we've picked up on From just doing these podcasts a lot of the best sports people we've talked to it they've had these setbacks but they've bounced back from them um and it's i think i've heard you talking about it before is that's really what separates a uh, a good athlete with a world-class athlete and what one i've heard you mentioned is ben stokes for example who obviously had his instant at bristol nightclub and then he went on to become wisdom cricketer of the year he had that incredible innings at Headingley, and that innings in itself required not just immense physical skill, but also mental skills as well.
0: well. As you say, I mean, it was an incredible turnaround, you know, when you think he probably would have been close to giving up the game, I guess, at some point, you know, with the stress and pressure around the the scandals that he was involved in. And then that ability to, you know, process that shame and failure and hurt into something motivational is, as you say, one of the sort of core characteristics of a of a high performer, really. I think people underestimate, you know, the role of failure in their success because, you know, the path to mastery, the path to, being, the path to being the best in the world gets steeper and steeper as you get up there. And it gets harder and harder to make a small improvement in your game. So you've got to be incredibly committed or even obsessed to get to the top. And you've got to be incredibly thick skinned. And, and what you do have to take out from each failure is the learning from it. You know, if, you know, if you if you were starting off on, uh, you know, some kind of culinary career and you sort of made your first recipe, put it in the oven and burnt it and then said, oh, that's it. I'm never going to cook again. You know, that that brick wall that you've hit, a lot of people crumple against those early failures. But actually, you know, the best performers say, well, with that example, they, they sort of zoom in and say that was a failure at that moment in time, because I've got the recipe wrong and I put it in the oven for four minutes too long. That's something I can change next time. So they look at something that's time specific and task specific and that it can be improved in the future. That's the key thing. So at one end of the spectrum, you've got people that that are saying that it's, oh, it was only the amount of flour I put in and it was only four minutes over and I can improve that next time. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got somebody who takes that incredibly personally they see it in their whole person, and they see it lasting forever. So the language they would use is "I'm crap at baking." So somewhere on that spectrum, you've got that whole, you know, range of people and how they process failure. So I think for me, you know, Ben Stokes' story is is so inspirational. I think he deserves a huge amount of credit. I mean, those, as you say, the the World Cup innings and the the Ashes innings were just they were once in a lifetime innings, really. And they came very close together. Warney as well, I think. Warney's had some massive setbacks and scandals, but his ability to just keep doing um, it—you know—I remember a game in India. We we played uh, in in the IPL, and I used to do the press conferences with Warney. So we'd be sort of sitting there with two microphones, and there'd just be like hundred Indian media there trying to get any bit of gossip possible. So you had to try and keep it really clean and clinical and. Professional, otherwise, there was just a massive story the next day. Warney wasn't particularly bothered about that, but I was a bit more. So, on this one day, it was Rajasthan versus Calcutta. Sarav Ganguly had been caught out by Graham Smith with a really low scooping catch and stood his ground, telling the umpire he didn't think it had carried. Of course, Warney went absolutely ballistic and the stump mic picked up the banter together. Sarav was saying it was falsely claimed, and Warney said, Justice will prevail, Sarav. It was all pretty tense. And there was a bit of a flare up and they'd had some uh, stories in the past, I think. So Warney wasn't backing down in this press conference, much as I was trying to keep the situation calm, Warney threw in some incendiary one-liners to keep the story going. So the next day it was all in the papers. There was that ticker tape running across the bottom of the TV with Shane Warne slams, you know, Calcutta prints, all this sort of business. And, and, you know, the Indian TV is just wall to wall cricket. So, there was pictures of kids in the street with like a Guy Fawkes effigy of Shane Warne, with like papier-mâché head, uh, you know, an Australian cricket shirt, Tipex white teeth, and like a blonde sort of wig on top. And they were setting fire to this like doll of Shane Warne, saying disgrace to Shane Warne. And I, I was with Wardy the next day. I said, "Look, mate, you got a, you got a decent, you know, you got him fired up out there," and he was just like smoking his cigarette and just going it's Mike Mappets it, and like st- <laughs> stubbed his stubbed his fag out and just carried on eating his breakfast and you just sort of think you know that ability to stay focused and stay resilient and play brilliantly again that day most people wouldn't sleep for a week if they'd seen that kind of thing but warning was just like ah, it's Mike off, <laughs> you know, off we go.
1: Making me think of something that I've heard on one of your podcasts as well Gareth Southgate was saying about the two ends of confidence there's one where you're essentially so naive that you're confident because you don't really know what's out there then there's a point where you've done so much work that you're incredibly confident because of all the experience you had and then there's that in between and like you said it's that ability to compartmentalize those failures and deal with all the self doubt that allows you to get to that end point and that's where the the greatest players are
0: yeah I think you know gareth's but Gareth's been incredible because I think what what he's done is you know obviously had that huge failure in in uh you know, Euro 96, where he missed the penalty, but he's now used that rather than again, shrinking away. And that being a defining moment in his life, you know, you could say that that's actually been a huge catalyst in his coaching career that he's now gone on and all the age group teams that he's coached have been brilliant at penalties. The England team's gone on and won penalty shootouts. And it's almost, you know, this ability to face your darkest fears and realize they're not as bad as you think they were. Um, You know, when we're fearful of high pressure situations, you know, we, we can actually suffer twice because we 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 worry about it so much that we don't sleep leading up to it. And then we mess it up because we've been so fearful. We're not thinking about where we're kicking the ball, and then we have the shame and, and the ridicule of missing it anyway. So this ability to say, well, I don't know if I'm gonna be the world's best player, but I'm gonna be as well prepared as I can. And that preparedness, that extraordinary level of preparedness makes me feel incredibly relaxed on the start line, or as I run up to bowl. And, and, you know, if I'm not good enough and Sachin hits me for six sixes, fair enough, but let me at least try and bowl the ball and land the ball where I want to, rather than be so worried about Sachin in the week before it that I can't let go of the ball. And for me, what I always try and encourage is, you know, be, try and, try and learn about psychology, try and learn about your mindset, because if you can learn some of these skills, not only does it make you better under pressure, but it actually makes you enjoy it.
1: But you've also actually worked in a variety of sports. I think you've worked with England Rugby, you've done South Africa Cricket, Rajasthan Royals, as we've mentioned, Crystal Palace and football. Do you find that you have to tailor your approach for for each different sport? Is there different intricacies in the types of pressure that they face in different sports?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. And, and again, I, I wasn't really planning to, sounds a bit strange, but I just went from Recommendation to recommendation, so I'd, I'd, you know, worked with South Africa. Uh, I worked with Sri Lanka. I worked with the Big Bash. Worked in the IPL. Those jobs all sort of came around um, in cricket, and then the opportunity to move across into football. I sit on the board of the LMA, which looks after a lot of the Premier League managers. So I do a lot of the lectures and, and education around that their leadership. And through one of those sessions, Alan Pardew had been involved and I I supported him a little bit at Newcastle and then he took me to Crystal Palace. Um, And again, that was a complete eye-opener, you know, the the sort of, you know, the Bentleys and Ferraris coming into the car park was a little bit different to Leicester uh, Leicester cricket. Um, You know, and you've got to recognise that these guys train a lot less, they're incredibly skilled and, um, you know, there's a lot of public profile on them when they do well or badly. So you've got to handle them sensitively. But I think what I noticed in football was that they were, quite, they were told what to do more. And it was almost like they weren't, you know, as a cricket in, in cricket, when I'd been working with South Africa or Sri Lanka, the bowling coach would generally sit with the bowlers and say, look at the way Alistair Cook bats. How are we going to get him out? And then the bowlers, Dale Steyn, Mornay Morker, would say, well, whenever I've come round the wicket and done this at him and bowled at this stump, I've got him out three times. And I think if I could bowl that, I'll get him out. You know, And it's almost like the players make the plan. The coach gives the scenario or the problem and the players try and solve it because they're the ones on the pitch that have got to go and do it. Which means that if something happens on the pitch that doesn't quite go to plan, they can't look back at the dressing room and say, what do I do now? They've got to be like entrepreneurs and solve it themselves. When I went into football, it was much more directional from the coach and the manager to say, okay, we're playing Liverpool on Saturday. Uh, You need to stand in this formation. Uh, The board, you know, the sort of dots on the, on the board, the magnetic board, you know, you go in here, you do this pincer movement, you swing around here and we'll pass you the ball and you go and score there. And when we're retreating, you know, track back and get in here and, this is how close you need to be and these like circles on the board. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, good. I mean, I'm not sort of into my football. So to me, it was all like, Ooh, okay. Did the lads get it? And they're all sort of just sitting there like no feedback. Then they go out on the pitch and sort of map that out physically and run around and stand in those places. And then they go out and play. And I was thinking, wow, that's, that's pretty, you know, pretty simple. Like, I, I don't know how much was learned, and then I went to England rugby with Eddie Jones and that educational system was like, it was like a degree course that the players won. There's 83 different line out moves, which I'd never even thought of. So all the different combinations, you've got players testing each other in the hotel corridor late at night because they know that in practice the next day they're going to you know get thrown around. And Eddie would basically swap players out in the line out. So they had to know every combination and he would put them under pressure in the match to recall those simulations, you know, for three days before the game. So that when it came to the game, there weren't any mistakes. So so I found the coaching environment for different sports really fascinating. Um, And... You know, I think that the move in football to make the players more aware and make them more take ownership of it is is a big thing.
1: And across working all those sports and all the different industries, what would you say are the qualities that are constant for people who are high performing in those different areas?
0: Um, Well, work ethic, you know, you're just not going to get to the top. You know, you can be the most talented athlete in the world. And this is where people misunderstand talent because, you know, people like Kevin Peterson I played in the 2020 World Cup in South Africa with KP and you know, watching him prepare against, you know, the different attacks and different, you know, he he was meticulous in his preparation. And yes, he had the hand-eye coordination and the the physical dexterity to play a switch hit, but he didn't just pull that out, you know, once, you know, under pressure. That that was planned and visualized and prepared for. So so I think the attention to detail in the work ethic is absolutely something that that sits you know, right at the heart of it. I think people have got to be self-motivated because, you know, which Olympic rower really wants to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go on the river when it's frosty and, you know, get frostbite as they're racing up and down there, you know, and you know, back in at eight, ready to do an ergo session uh, or a weight session. There's not many people really who love doing that. Um, so so the hard work and the self-motivation is definitely a, a key but then I think it's that ability to be coachable and learn quickly. That's really the, the accelerator, I guess. Because if you can, you know, play a game of cricket and learn from it and be 5% better the next time and do that with compound interest, you get a real street, steep trajectory of import, um, uh, performance and improvement. If you're just playing the same game of cricket day after day and you're dumb and you don't think and you, you're none the wiser – you're basically three years older and not three years better. And I think that's the big difference for me, that that ability to want to get better every day is is the sort of catalyst that makes people step up. Well, I hope you enjoyed those discussion points. Please do follow the link in the show notes to listen to the whole episode. Cam and Joel have interviewed some really interesting people in recent months. So please do go over to their show and take a look. I'm busy delivering lots of corporate webinars for my clients this week. I know there's big themes around resilience and the future of leadership as we get out of this pandemic. So that's going to keep me busy, but I'll be back with a full length episode of the podcast for you next week. Remember to connect with me on LinkedIn or social channels and the founder membership offer of Sporting Edge is still available at sportingedge.com forward slash membership. We've got a really exciting mastermind session with an expert in communication coming up in April. So come across and look what the members community is all about. As ever, please do rate and review the show. And if I can support you with any specific questions on your mindset, your leadership, or your organisational performance, then send them across to hello at sportingedge.com. So that's it for today. Enjoy your dog walk, your coffee, or your run. Have a great day, and we'll see you soon.